And brothers and sisters, it's great to worship with you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful Sunday. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you please open to the book of Psalms? And we're going to be in Psalm chapter 8 today. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to use uh, one of those pew Bibles in front of you. And especially if you're new to our church or you're new to the study of the Bible, um, what we do is we, we study one particular passage, and so you want to leave your Bible open the whole time. We're going to come back and look at different parts of it. It's, it's not just a reading, but a thorough study together. And if you're using that Pew Bible, uh, you'll find Psalm chapter 8 on page 474. And so I want to encourage you to have your Bible open, take a few notes this morning as we feast on the Word of God. Have you ever been with someone who acted indifferent to something that was clearly amazing? Maybe it was an amazing meal and they said, "Eh, it's okay. Or maybe a a beautiful piece of art and they said, "Mm, I could do that. Or or maybe just a spectacular movie and at the end of it all they were like, meh, the popcorn was good. It can be really frustrating sometimes when people see amazing things and respond uh, with less than awe. And it's hard to comprehend how that happens. And yet so often it happens that Christians come to worship with a yawn. We find it a chore. Uh, for some reason, it's, it's, it seems like a task, just another in a long line of tasks. I've got to pray i got to go to church, i got to read the Bible, I have to worship. And I think for many people, it seems like a task that they might be okay skipping. And, and why is that? What is it that leads a Christian to not be a person who just thrives in worship? I think the deficit there is a deficit in an understanding of who God is because For God's people, worship is not a chore that we are assigned. It is a natural response to us seeing God for who He is in all of His majesty and glory and love and compassion and might. Now, it's clear that we need help. We need lessons in how to worship. And that's the purpose of Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 calls us to worship by showing us the incredible work and character of God. And it's my goal today to help you become an unstoppable worshiper of God. Now, this is where you say, uh, Cody, this is, wait a second, Cody, this sounds very familiar. Yeah, let me check. In fact, you said this exact same thing last Sunday. Last Sunday in your introduction, you said, I want you to be an unstoppable worshiper of God. So my first response is, I am so proud of you for remembering anything I've ever said from this pulpit. So good for you, and uh, I'm, I'll be walking on my tiptoes the rest of the day. Thank you for remembering. Here's the second thing uh, I, I want to say is, did it work? Uh, was your worship enriched this week after we were inspired to worship from Psalm chapter 2 last week. If it was enriched, if your worship did grow deeper and broader, well then we're going to once again address a topic that you love. It's not going to be a chore for you at all. And if your worship was not affected from our study of Psalm 2, then 
Uh, the Bible is gracious in giving us this topic again. It's as if the Bible knows we need to be called to worship repeatedly. Look, if, if you were to read one chapter of the book of Psalms per day, starting at Psalm chapter 1, then today you would be eight days into the Psalms, and you would have read eight repeated calls to worship. The act of worship is not a chore that God requires of us. It's the natural response of saved people to the God of infinite beauty. And so my task today is to call you to worship. And Psalm chapter 8 gives us three beautiful aspects of God that we respond to with praise. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 1. A Psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. So Psalm 8 invites us to worship by standing us in front of God and telling us to look at Him. And this psalm gives us three reasons to worship Him. The first is this. It tells us to worship Him because of His infinite greatness. We should worship God for His infinite greatness. And verse 1 makes this abundantly clear. The psalm begins with some geographic markers. It doesn't seem like it at first, but if you slow down a bit, then you see it tells us that God's name is magnificent throughout the earth. His majesty covers the heavens. So look at verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And then it looks up and it says, you have covered the heavens with your majesty. So I take the reference to heavens in verse 1 as a reference to the sky above. He uses that same language again in verse 3. So here at the beginning of the psalm, we're confronted with the reality that there is no place between earth below and heaven above where we do not see the magnificence and the majesty of God. What does it mean to call God magnificent? Well, to, to call Him magnificent is to say God is impressive, beautiful, extravagant, striking, spectacular. Magnificent is the word you might exclaim when you see the ocean for the first time or you stand in front of the Lincoln Memorial or you see the Grand Canyon or you hear Pavarotti sing Nessun Dorma. Vincent Van Gogh's name is magnificent at the Museum of Fine Arts and Ted Williams' name is magnificent at Fenway. And Steven Spielberg's name is magnificent in a movie theater. Mariah Carey's name is magnificent on a stage. Gordon Ramsay's name is magnificent in a kitchen. Usain Bolt's name is magnificent in Jamaica. God's name 
is magnificent throughout the whole earth. What does it mean to speak of God's majesty? Well, to speak of God's majesty is to speak of his grandeur, his dominion, his dignity, his authority. Majesty is the word you use when you address royalty. Majesty is what you experience when an orchestra plays selections from Beethoven or Bach or Chopin. Majesty is what you experience when you tour the mansions in Newport. Majesty is what I see at at the Hingham Fourth of July parade up and down Main Street. Now for royalty, majesty is witnessed in their regalia. For our servicemen and women, majesty is in every medal. For a violin player, there's majesty in a Stradivarius. For a car collector, there's majesty in a Rolls Royce. But God has covered the heavens with his majesty. Every river says he is magnificent. Every star says he is majestic. Every mountain says he is magnificent. And every sunrise says he is majestic. In Massachusetts, in Haiti, in Brazil, in Taiwan, in Canada, in Cambodia, in Uganda, in Zambia, in Ireland, in Italy, in Mexico, in China, in Singapore, he is magnificent. In every constellation, every solar system, every galaxy, every nebula, every black hole, every ring around Saturn testifies he is majestic. And do you know what's most amazing about this one verse? The earth gets to call him magnificent. The heavens get to call him majestic. But you get to call him majestic. Lord, our Lord. Look, the earth and the heavens can only describe him. You get to claim him. Earth and heavens can say, here's what he's like. You get to say, he's mine. And he's not just Lord, my Lord. Verse 1 says, he is Lord, our Lord. I'm not alone, I have a family. I'm part of the faith community, brothers and sisters, spiritual fathers and mothers, all of us together with one voice singing, Lord, our Lord. Once upon a time, the 12 disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And I wonder if Jesus had Psalm 8, 1 in mind when he told them this When you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. He is our Father, magnificent and majestic. He hears our prayers and receives our worship. His infinite greatness is a reason for you to praise Him. It's not the only reason, though. Psalm 8 gives us a second reason. In verse 2, it tells us to worship God for his ironic strength. We're to worship God for his ironic strength. Ironic strength is a term I take from one of my favorite Bible scholars on this passage, a man named Del Ralph Davis. 
Verse 2 is a bit strange on first reading, but after about your 10th reading, your mind just goes, oh my word, unbelievable. Look at verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. So what's happening in verse 2? It's describing how God has created a position of strength against his enemies. So we're told in the psalm that God has established a stronghold. Your translation might look a little different there. Uh, The CSB and the NIV both say established a stronghold. If you have an ESV, it says you have established strength. The King James says you have ordained strength. What they're all describing is that God has created and is still creating a position of strength against his enemies. It's proper and common that one nation or a group would create a position of strength against their enemies. We might expect something like a fort or a bunker or or even a military maneuver involving a, a, a certain amount of personnel. And this position is not just a defensive position. It's not just, you know, set up the fort and then wait on the enemy's attack. There's something about this display of strength that is so strong, so imposing, that it stops the enemy in their tracks. So this is what God's doing. He's creating this position of strength against his enemies, his adversaries. And what does God use to create this stronghold? Verse 2 tells us, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold. Makes sense. Moving on. Next. Actually, no, it doesn't make much sense at all, does it? What's this talking about? Something about babies and infants, things coming from their mouth. We would expect brick and mortar, a a, a military cache, some sort of weaponry uh, with an aircraft carrier and nuclear missiles. You've created a stronghold. That's how we think of strength. But no, God tells us there's something, something that's coming out of the mouths of children and infants that establishes this strength. What is this thing? Well, Jesus answers the question for us. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus quotes Psalm 8, 2. So Matthew 21, uh, it, it's, it, it tells us of another run-in between Jesus and the religious leaders. leaders. They really hated him. They hated his miracles. They did not persuade them. And so look at what Matthew 21 says. Matthew 21, starting in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. There's Psalm 8 too. Think of the scene In Matthew 21, Jesus is healing blind people and those who are unable to walk. Multiple life-changing, reality-bending miracles are happening in the temple complex. 
And people are praising Jesus as a result, including children who are almost prophetically saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're not just saying praise to the miracle worker. They give him a proper title, the Son of David. Now, it's Christmas season. We know that Jesus' dad wasn't named David. His name was Joseph. But David is an ancestor of Jesus. King David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings. And given to David was a promise that one would come from him who would be God's anointed, the Messiah, the one who would rescue his people once and for all. So when the children praise Jesus, they call him the son of David. This is a messianic title. The religious leaders who are trying to shut the whole scene down, they don't get it. But the children see and the children proclaim this monumental, infinite, redemptive truth. Jesus is the king greater than David. He is the temple. He is the holy of holies. And the religious leaders try to shut up the kids and shut down Jesus. And in response, Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2. What's the stronghold from the mouths of infants and children against the enemies of God and his people. The stronghold is the praise of children. God's stronghold is built out of praise from children. Not the praise of angels' choirs, not the praise of priests, not the praise of the nation of Israel, not the praise of the church, not the praise of the collective nations of planet Earth. It's the praise of children. And what does that tell us about God's strength? Well, Psalm 8-2, this beautiful poem, is telling us that there's something ironic about the strength of God. We think of strength as military hardware, big muscles, a lot of power, a supreme court, a sitting political leader. And that's not at all how God displays strength, is it? His stronghold against his enemies that renders them silence comes from that which is small and insignificant. There's a contrast in verse 2 between the babies and the bad guys. With the bad guys, we have hairy-chested, rebellious, violent, angry foes of God. On the other side, we have babies that are cuddly and wrinkly and helpless. And the point is, that which seems inconsequential has overwhelmed that which seems mighty. And friends, is this not the narrative that drives the Christmas season? That from a virgin girl was born God, incarnated, took on flesh. And he didn't come with the power and the glory of heaven and its angels. He's born in borrowed accommodations, laid in a food trough. It's in utter weakness and helplessness that the kingdom of God invades his planet and comes to bring salvation for his people. And he doesn't win that salvation with a sword, but at his death, beaten and brutalized and mocked and spit upon and cursed by his own creation, those he has come to save. In utter weakness, the king of glory reigns. That ironic strength calls us to praise. It elicits worship from us. This is why we worship him. He's strong in the true way, not an earthly way. 
He's not strong how we define strong. He's strong as He is, omnipotent, all-powerful, all strength belonging to Him. And all of that strength has been deployed to save you and to bring you all the way home. So when we see the ironic strength of God, it's time to worship. We worship Him because of His infinite greatness, and we worship Him because of His ironic strength. Third and finally, we worship God for His incredible love. The bulk of the psalm, verses 3 through 9, uh, speak of God's incredible care for human beings. And so look at what verses 3 and 4 say. He says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what's a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? Now you remember way back in verse 1, we marveled at God's majesty which covers the heavens. Stars and planets, galaxies and nebula are incredible. Every picture from the James Webb telescope reveals to us new majesties that are as old as creation itself. Heaven holds majesty that we've not yet seen or attributed to God. But with every picture from outer space, another opportunity for us to say how incredible and majestic is our God. But there's something more incredible, more inspiring, more marvelous than God's majesty in the heavens. And do you know what it is? It's His care for us. What is a human being that you remember Him? A son of man that you look after Him? It's incredible to think that the God who hung the stars in the sky also knows our names and ordered our steps and crafted our days. God always remembers you. He always thinks of you. He's always attentive to you. Now, a narcissist uh, would assume that, that God thinks of them because they are a big deal. But the common person knows how small they are and how grand the heavenly creation is. And we are in awe that a God so grand would be so granular as to think of us. If we value ourselves properly, we, we might value ourselves as worth very little. But the psalm argues that God values us greatly. And, and God's done two things that show how highly He values His people. First of all, verse 5 tells us He gave us stature. Look at what verse 5 says of us. It says, you made Him, you made people, little less than God and crowned Him with glory and honor. God didn't make us with equal value to His. He didn't make us with more value than He possesses. Rather, He made us little less than Himself, and He crowned us with glory and honor. What does it mean that He crowned us with glory and honor? Well, I, I think the way in which glory and honor belongs to all human beings 
comes from the fact that God has created us in his image. Only humans are created in the image of God. And so the glory and honor that we bear is a reflection of his glory and honor. Think about this. If you are a sculpture, if you, if you sculpt a statue of someone, you've created their image. That's not the person. It's the image of the person. It's a reflection of them. And if you took that sculpture and you placed it in the museum or in town square, you would want people to look at that image and think something about the person. They're a hero. They're honorable. They're noble. You want them to think about that person. The image evokes a response. Now, imagine this. You create eight billion sculptures of yourself and you place them all over planet earth you're filling the earth with your glory that's what God has done in human beings he has created us in his image and placed us all over this planet so that we would reflect or display his glory and honor so that we would reflect how great he is and what he is like. And humans are unique in this. Panda bears are not image bearers. Nor are trees or oceans or mountains or any animal or any fish or any bird. Only humans because you are that valuable to God. There's a second way God shows our high value to him. The second way is that he made us rulers over his creation, verses 6 to 8. He made us rulers over his creation. Verse 6 says, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You, you put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, birds of the sky, fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. So here again, this verse shows that humans occupy a special role in God's creation. We are rulers over it. What does it mean to be a ruler over God's creation? <clears throat> if you've ever had someone house sit for you while you're away on a trip, well, that person is the ruler of your house while you're gone. They're not simply stewards of your house, though stewardship is a part of their ruling over your stuff. But as rulers, they have dominion. They have real authority over your place while you're gone. You give them keys. You give them security codes. You give them phone numbers, the names of neighbors. You, you tell them to eat and drink the stuff in the fridge, sleep in the bed, use the washer and dryer. Make yourself at home. They're not just popping in to check. They're living there while you're away. They're ruling over your place. Now, does that mean they get to throw a party? No. Does that mean they get to repaint the living room? No. They're going to convert all the beds in your house to water beds. No, that's not the kind of ruler they are. They're not monarchs over the stuff you own. They're governors. Not just stewards, but, but governors who are stewarding as a ruler over your place. And that's what it's like for us when this psalm calls us rulers. God has made us rulers over his creation. Not monarchs to do with it whatever we want, but governors to care for that which belongs to God in a way that pleases him. And so 
God has appointed us rulers, governors, stewards over, over what? Over everything, according to verse 6. Domestic animals and wild animals in verse 7. Birds in the sky, fish in the sea in verse 8. God values you so much. He made you in his image, crowned you with glory and honor, and he appointed you as governor over his creation. He values you highly. He values you properly. Now, we create problems when we misvalue the things of God, whether people or his creation. First of all, it's a problem when humans value themselves more than God. When we think God is there to serve us rather than the other way around, that's a problem when humans think of themselves as more valuable than God. It's also a problem when humans are valued less than creation. Humans are more valuable than dolphins, more valuable than trees, more valuable than rivers and oceans and everything else by the declaration of God. It's a problem when we treat humans as less valuable than creation. Third problem, it's also a problem when we value God's creation less than God expects us to. So Psalm 8 teaches us something of the value of humans. It teaches us that humans are incredibly valuable. But what do you think Psalm 8 teaches us about the value of Jesus? You might not have been thinking about that, but the writer of Hebrews was thinking of that when he wrote Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Look at what he said of Jesus in light of Psalm 8. In verse 6, but someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you remembered him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Now, when you and I first read Psalm 8, we read it as if it was just about people in general, and that's not wrong. It is. But when the writer of Hebrews read Psalm 8, he or she, why not, found it full of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. That's a title he used of himself repeatedly in his earthly ministry. Jesus did take on the limitations of flesh at his incarnation and was made lower than the angels. And everything was subjected under his feet. What does that mean? What does it mean that everything was subjected to Jesus? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers. Look at the middle of verse 8. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. You were crowned with glory and honor because you bear the image of God. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because he bore your sins at the cross. You were appointed ruler over cows and creeks, but Jesus is Lord over souls. Not simply as a steward or a temporary governor, but as the eternal king. And redemption is not yet completed, so not everything is in active subjection to him. 
but will be once he returns. That's where all of history is moving. He died for you while you were still a sinner. He didn't die for good people. He died for people who were lost in their sin. And in fact, one of our most beloved Bible verses speaks of God's incredible love for you. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you more than creation, loves you and crowns you with glory and honor by bearing his image. He loves you and made you a ruler over his creation. He loves you, though you're a sinner. He loves you, though you didn't love him. He loves you and sent his son to die for you. And he, his son was given a thorny crown, which was his glory and honor. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And he loves you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to talk directly to you for just a minute Look, a mistake that so many people often make is we assume that God's just sitting on a cloud somewhere waiting for people to worship Him. God has this worship tank that's empty, and He requires humans to fill that tank. And so if we just walk by and throw up a song to heaven, then it warms God's heart. It fills His tank. And so we might do that from time to time, just pop into church or at the holiday season, get into a service or just, you know, do whatever the worship act is, assuming that that's what will make God happy. And that's not what Psalm 8 has shown us this morning, is it? Not, not at all. God isn't up there just starving for you to sing him a song, but rather worship is a gift given by God to those he's rescued. It's the natural response of the saved to the God who saved them. So worship's this natural response to God's grace and love. And if you haven't experienced his grace and love by turning to Jesus Christ, you don't have worship to give. You, you have no natural response to give. You're your own God. You're living as if he is below you there to serve you. But we are those that are created. He's the creator. And he's the loving, compassionate, merciful, magnificent, majestic God who knows you by name. His promise to you is this. If you'll turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and you'll turn to Jesus who died in your place for your sin and rose from the dead again, that you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of your sin. You'll be given eternal life. He will be your God. You will be his child. And then and only then you become a worshiper who can sing, Lord, our Lord. That's how the incredible love of God turns us into worshipers. So the book of Psalms is amazing on the whole. The whole rest of the Bible is God's word to man, but the book of Psalms contains our words to God. Psalm 8 is an invitation to praise God. And here's the reasons why you should join this global choir. Your God is the God of infinite greatness and ironic strength and incredible love. And did you notice that the first line of Psalm 8 and the last line are the same? Did you notice that? It's bookended by the exact same line, Lord, 
our Lord. How magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Now let's think about that just for a moment. Imagine with me that Psalm 8 is a person. Let's personify it for just this moment. Psalm 8 is a person, and she says to you, give praise to God. And you respond with verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Now, you've said right words, and you've said true words, but Psalm 8 isn't convinced that you fully understand what you've said. So she grabs you by the cheeks, and she turns your face to the Holy One, and she explains to you the content of what you've just said. I want you to understand who He is. So let me describe to you His infinite greatness. And then she describes to you His ironic strength. And then she describes for you His incredible love for you. And then she looks at you again and she says, Now what? And now with deeper understanding, clearer sight, a heart overflowing, you respond with verse 9. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. It's the same words as before, but their weight is different. Because you've been given a glimpse of the God of glory. Psalm 8 doesn't teach us to worship by giving us voice lessons or, or teaching us to read sheet music. It teaches us to worship by sitting us in front of God and saying, look at Him. He loves you. And when the finite beholds the infinite, when the created beholds the Creator, when the sinner beholds grace, when the rebel beholds love, the only natural response is worship. Now tomorrow... Monday is going to make demands of you. You may have to go to work or school or any number of appointments. You may have a crisis on your hands that you have to navigate. You have stressors galore, anxieties unknown. It's going to be a full day. And as such, it is the right day to sit aside whatever time is necessary to look at God and have your awe renewed. You're going to need that tomorrow. And I've got a warning for you. That awe is fleeting. The awe you capture on Monday will not last into Tuesday. Tuesday, again, you're going to need to sit with the magnificent, majestic God. Look at Him again. And have your awe renewed. And Tuesday's awe won't do for Wednesday or the day after that. Every day we have this invitation to look at our God and to respond in worship at His incredible love. And when you do that, your confession never grows stale. Your worship will never be an empty performance. But with a heart full and deep understanding, your life will proclaim, Lord our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, we declare this truth given to us by your word. 
Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You've covered the heavens with your majesty. And we're awed by your creation. But then when we think about the ways in which you have loved us at such a great cost to yourself, you knew at creation what our salvation would require. And still you've done it. And so we, we praise your name for you and you alone have loved us in this way. Our creator, our redeemer, we are your people and we love you. We praise your name. Thank you for making us your image bearers. Thank you for the dignity you have given to us. And thank you for the salvation that is ours through Jesus, who was crowned with glory and honor on the cross, who rose from the dead and gives eternal life to all who call on him. So, Lord, today, for those in here that don't know Jesus as their Savior, Father, would you draw them to you clearly? Let this be the day they say yes. And for my brothers and sisters, we delight that together with one voice, we can proclaim that you are Lord, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.